right. I'm glad that you're here tonight. Good to see you. Hope you've enjoyed all the water for your gardens and probably got the lawnmowers ready to go again. A lot of rain lately. If it gets any warmer, that grass will be sprouting. But it's nice to still be here, have a nice warm building to gather in, be able to open the Word of God together and hopefully learn something that we don't know or be reminded of things we did know but aren't applying in our lives. I don't know in terms of announcements, there's not much really to announce other than there's not going to be a men's Bible study this, this coming Friday. There will be a New Year's Eve service on Sunday, so if you're around for that, that be, should be a very enjoyable and encouraging time of fellowship following the service. There's an email I sent out today about different food items that are going to be necessary for the meal that we're going to have after the service on Sunday, so back-to-back Sundays with meals afterward. Could get used to that, probably, so... Keep that in mind. There's some things you could sign up for. As I understand it, they're going to be like small meatball sliders are going to be the main, the main item and then a lot of other things to go with that in terms of side dishes and salads and those types of things. So if you're, if you're looking for uh, something to do following the service, plan on that meal. And then in terms of hanging out, there's not going to be an official New Year's Eve program per se. But the church is going to be open and people are going to be here. And so if you have specific ideas or things that you'd like to do, bring them with you. You know, in terms of, I think we're going to try to do, weather permitting, try to have some boot hockey types of games. If you, I think there's going to be a fire, probably some s'mores, probably people playing board games and those types of things. There may be a time of music later in the day. So if you had any specials or any... um, kinds of things like that that you wanted to do, you know, with a group of people, just have a time of music. Maybe we'll do something like that. So if you have, you know, musical ability, piano, piano, guitar, you just want to sing along, we'll probably try to do a little bit of that, uh, just informally. And if you have, you know, want to jump in on it, that would be, be great. And so however long that lasts is, I guess, up to whoever's here in terms of you could stay here till the new year if you want, as long as, you know, eventually probably get over here and shut the lights off. But so that's coming up this Sunday. So pray about that and invite other people to come out, mention it to people. Should be a fun time of of fellowship. You think about the gathering. What makes the gathering of believers unique or, or so important? And some of it's the content. But I think the most important part of it is that we are gathering. We're, we're getting together. A family of believers can't really function that closely or intimately as a family if we're not getting together. And then it, what you're going to do when you get together, of course, it always it starts first and foremost with wanting to put the spotlight or the focus on, on the Lord. And so there's a lot of ways to do that. But the thing that draws us together or the thing that we have in common is that we have a shared faith in the Savior, Jesus Christ. So it starts with that. That's what brings us together. And then how we spend that time together is made up of a variety of different things. And I've talked about that before. But what I love about 
the gathering is that we're together. And part of that, yeah, we're going to have teaching from the Word of God here tonight. We sang a, a song here together. We're going to have a time to pray together. And we're going to have a time to fellowship and just enjoy being in each other's proximity in, in physical closeness to one another on a Wednesday night, a midweek study. And so when you take advantage of or you have the opportunity to come do that, that's a blessing. And I think a lot of times we can turn gathering with one another into even a sense of it's just a pattern or it's an obligation. It's, it's not something where I'm actually looking forward to it, even if I'm not thinking right. And that's not what God wants. It's something we should look forward to, not, not because we have to do it, because we get to do it, because we're privileged to be able to do it. So that's how I see all of these get-togethers. Get and you might have other things going on. Maybe you can't stay for long. Maybe you can't stay for even the lunch. But it'd be a fun opportunity to spend time with one another, just like it is here tonight. All right, that's all that I can think of. Anyone else have something that they want to announce or that I'm missing? All right, you can always check upcoming events on our website under the current events on the screen before each service, whether it's Sunday morning or Wednesday night. There's an announcement screen in the lobby that will have all the information on it about things that are coming up. Well, let's have a word of prayer then and we'll dive into our text for tonight. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your great love. Thank you for this body of believers that you've given us, the one and others that you've put in our life. Thank you that we get to live life with you where you never leave us. You've actually sent your spirit to live inside of us so that we're never alone, that you'll never forsake us. Thank you then that you undertook to put other people in our lives that could have the opportunity to live life with us, encourage us, build us up, help to pick us up even at times to be an encouragement to others and also be a means or a vehicle for us to be used of you to minister to them, that we would see it even as a blessing to be able to be invest in people's lives as led and directed by you, that we'd see the privilege of being your hands and your feet and allowing you to shine through our lives when we're willing. Pray that we would see that you have given us a mission that our lives are not just to be spent on self, but our lives are to be spent living to lift you up and putting the spotlight on you. Pray that you give us that mentality, that you give us boldness, you'd give us compassion and love for people so that we would have hearts that have the right mentality that wants to live in dependence on you and trust you and grow in our faith in you, but then be used of you as you see fit, as you direct us and you direct our steps. Pray that we would collectively as a church be a bright light into the darkness around us. Pray for the, the teaching here tonight that it would be clear and accurate, both here and in the Truth for Youth classes that you'd give the young people minds that are interested in you and are open to growing in their faith. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, the title of tonight's message is Out of the Miry Clay. Out of the Miry Clay. As I was studying this Psalm 40 yesterday, I remembered an old hymn that used the phrase miry clay, but I couldn't, I couldn't think of the name of it. Thankfully, Brent and Bonnie were able to figure, out, figure it out, and it's the song we sang tonight, He Ransomed Me. It's not a song I've, we've sang recently as far as I know, but it's a wonderful song in its own right. It was written by a woman named Julia Johnston, Johnston in 1916. And so it's been around over a hundred 
years. And as you think about that chorus that we sang four times as there were four verses to this song, it was, Hallelujah, what a Savior who can take a poor lost sinner, lift him from the miry clay, and set him free. I will ever tell the story shouting, Glory, 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 hallelujah, Jesus lifted me. Picture there, he lifted me out of something. And in the context, he lifted me out of the miry clay. And miry clay describes deep, wet, sticky earth or mud that is difficult to move through. So when you combine that, this sense of miry, you put it together with clay and you have really that type of ground, you know, that clay is especially slippery, especially sticky. It's, that's why it works to build things or make things that will then hold together is because it's so, it's so compact and it so clings to itself, I guess, is the way of saying it. So miry specifically is just referring to deep, wet, sticky. It can refer to any kind of earth, but then we add clay to it and you have a picture kind of of what I'm talking about. Perhaps you've experienced this in your own life, miry clay. And you'd, you'd know if you had, you, got, you have your boots on, you're maybe trying to get through a swamp type of an area, or you go through something that's relatively lowlands. Maybe you don't have your, your mud boots on, but nonetheless, you find yourself stepping into really, a really soft and really deep kind of a clay bog or something along those lines, muddy bog. The kind of thing that sucks onto your boot that you can't even hardly pull your leg back out of. Oftentimes, you may even need help to get out of a situation like that. I myself have been in that many times where it was nothing very significant, just your boot somewhat stuck, and you got to really wrestle to get it loose. Other times, I remember I've been in that kind of a situation where you're you're up to your crotch or your waist and stuff like that. And you're really fighting to get out. I remember one time in the Boundary Waters on a portage that was sort of like that, where if you got off the path at all, you'd drop down real deep like that. I remember my brother Aaron was in front of me on a portage, and he stepped off the beaten path and went down to about his waist in this kind of thing with a canoe on his shoulders. And I remember trying to help him get the canoe off of his shoulders and then get the pack off of his back. And you're standing basically in a swamp doing this but that's the really the funny part was then to get him out of there we got him out of there minus one boot so now he's down on his stomach and if you know my brother Aaron just picture this but he's down on his stomach now with his up to his armpit trying to reach down into this hole to get his boot out of there and he eventually did get it out of there and we made it through that portage but the the picture is when I think of miry clay or I think of a mire that's exactly what I'm picturing is that it's that sticky kind of a thing that if you didn't have somebody to help you, you'd be really stuck. And so that's what David is talking about in Psalm 40 when he's using this vivid imagery to illustrate this sense of being hopelessly stuck, helpless, and in need of assistance. And in the context that David is using, needing divine assistance because he's not talking about just any kind of stuck. He's talking about spiritually stuck in a place where I can't, I can't move forward apart apart from God's intervention in my life. And so the psalm clearly puts the spotlight on God and the need for dependence on his provision. And so we'll take a look here at this wonderful psalm, Psalm 40. Turn there if you haven't already. It's not overly long, but it's it's packed with nuggets 
So we'll dive right in here with verse 1. Psalm 40, verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. Why don't we read the whole thing, I guess, so we'll have the uninterrupted context. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened, burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you know, you yourself know, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me, you are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. So we look at, back to the beginning, we look at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. Now with that phrase, that opening phrase, David describes a posture he adopts during a time of difficulty in his life. So I waited patiently for the Lord. So that starts off by just recognizing what David's mentality is at some point in time during this trial that he's facing. Assumed in this statement is David having first cried out to the Lord. So if you're going to put it in order, I cried out to the Lord, I called out to the Lord for help, and I believe that's what he's talking about when we get a little bit further in the psalm where he talks about crying out to the Lord. And I think that's him describing what he did in real time a little bit later, and now he's sort of summarizing it to start the psalm. But you'll see a little bit later that he talks about when I'm in a place like that, I had no other place to turn other than to cry out to the Lord. And that's where he says in verse 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. He did that in response to facing difficulties that were of his own making and of the making of the world around him. And we'll get to that in a bit. But he gets to this posture where he's waiting patiently on the Lord. 
So he first cries out to the Lord, you have to assume that. Then he's waiting patiently on the Lord's response. And having cried out to the Lord, that is the next step of faith. So the first step of faith is to, I'm in a place of need, I recognize the dilemma that I'm in. I see how hopeless and helpless I am to deal with this on my own. So that's a needed first step. Second step then, if I'm going to step out by faith, it's to cry out to the Lord about that. Call on him, involve him in my life in that sense. Look to him for provision and direction and for strength to deal with that difficulty. And then the next step of faith is to wait Patiently. So I waited patiently actually tra- is translated as waiting I waited. So waiting I waited. And so from that literal translation, you have the more readable translation, I waited patiently. But literally, these, it's back-to-back words that mean wait. Waiting I waited. And so this word can also be translated as hoped. And I think that really captures the idea here because it involves confidently trusting in the Lord. So waiting patiently, what are we talking about here? We're we're talking about trusting the Lord, looking to the Lord with this confident expectation that that God is able to, willing and able, to undertake in our lives when we're facing difficulty. And we observe David expressing this type of confidence in Psalm 27. Turn there for a second. Psalm 27. We'll look at the first verse of that psalm. Psalm 27, verse 1, a few pages to your left. He says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, these are questions that are just being used metaphorically to communicate this concept that, of course, No one. Whom shall I fear? Answer, no one. Of whom shall I be afraid? Answer, no one. Why? Because God is much bigger than anything that I'm facing. That's the kind of confidence that we're talking about here when we're talking about what it means to wait patiently or to wait on the Lord. You'll see that it's, he says, I waited patiently, but I just didn't wait patiently in general. I waited patiently for the Lord. The focus or the object of my expectation or my confidence is the trust that I have in the Lord. And the question you could ask is, where else are you going to turn? Where else are you going to turn? See, nothing else makes sense for the believer. Oftentimes, it doesn't even make sense for the unbeliever. Because the truth is, when you're in a bind, oftentimes there's no solution. There's nowhere else to turn. You're just left with waiting it out. Because there's nothing you could do about it. Again, we've talked about this many times, but many of the troubles and trials and tribulations and circumstances that you find yourself in, you have no control over. You can worry about it. You can analyze it. You can fret about it. You can be frustrated by it. But you have no ability to actually do anything about it. And so instead of trying to do that, why not give it to the one who is in control? I'm not in control. Once I see that, then I'm in a posture where I can trust the Lord and say, I'm going to give this over to you. I'm going to trust, trust you. I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to find my confidence in you, the one who is ultimately in control of everything. And so that's sort of the mentality as we're looking at David's use of this phrase, I waited patiently for the Lord. Nothing else makes sense. Now, 
What is God's response to that? Well, we see this in the back half of the first verse here. What did God, how did God respond? He inclined to me and he heard my cry. So God is said to have inclined to me and heard my cry, which refers to him listening or taking notice of David's plight. You see, we have a God who cares. We have a God who's present. We have a God who's interested in the things that are going on in our lives. We have a God who is interested in us. And so oftentimes you could look at a situation that you're facing and you could say, I'm all alone in this. And the truth is the Christian is never alone. The man or woman of faith is never alone. You could look at a situation, you could say, I have no solutions to this problem that I'm facing. And yet you have one who cares for you who is capable of solving any problem that you face. You might say, I have no control, yet you have a God, a Father in heaven, who is in control all the time. You might say, I don't have the strength, yet you have a God who is on your side and is good all of the time, who is limitless in his power and in his ability to undertake for the circumstances that you're facing. And so God is not blind or ignoring the plight of his children. So some of this is, there's this mentality that David has where I patiently waited for you, having first cried out to you. And we'll see that as he describes the process that he actually went through, you'll see that that was a part of it. Then he waited patiently on the Lord, and then the Lord responded. But it started with the Lord taking notice of what he was going through or hearing our prayers to begin with. See, God is desperately interested that we would be living life with him. So if we're built first and foremost, if we're made to have a relationship with God, if man's purpose in existing was to praise the Lord or to lift the Lord up or to honor, honor the Lord, some would say that man's chief aim is to glorify the Lord. But that's in the context of enjoying the Lord. So as I'm enjoying the Lord forever, I'm naturally going to glorify the Lord because that will be a natural byproduct of enjoying him. Well, as that's true, I'm going to have this sense that the only way that I could enjoy the Lord is if I had a relationship, a right, close, intimate, personal relationship with God. And that's what we see on the pages of Scripture is God having an interest in man, learning to depend on him, to trust in him, to talk to him, to follow him, to be used by him. But this close relationship, well, it starts first and foremost with having this sense or having this mentality that says, I want to involve God in what's going on in my life. Now, question, is God omniscient? Does God know everything that's going on? The answer is yes, but he wants to hear it from you. He wants to hear it from you. God is not going to force himself on us. God doesn't force us to take advantage of that relationship with him or the provision that he has for us. So is God, are you ever telling God something he's not aware of? And the answer is no, but yet he wants to hear it from you. As a parent, have you ever had circumstances where you could see that your child was experiencing something or you maybe even heard it in the background? You perceived it by having witnessed it to some, in some way, shape, or form. Isn't it satisfying, though, when they'll actually, instead of you having to initiate that conversation, isn't it nice for them to actually come to you first about something that maybe you were even already aware of? Now, as a, 
As a human parent, it could be something you weren't aware of. But isn't it nice when you see that they trust you enough that they want to bring those things to you? That's what you're after. And that's what God is ultimately after. So we see that here with these phrases, he inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, the second part of this in verse 2 is, he brought or lifted me up. So I cried out to him. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He was aware of it. And he responded. He brought or lifted me up. Now, verse 2, let's just read it. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. And what did he do? He set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. So this is the next step in this progression of dealing with life's trial. Trials God undertakes, provides, and rescues, having had us call out to him, look to him for assistance. He hears that, and then he undertakes, provides, and rescues. Now, David likens the difficulty of the trial he faced to being in a pit of muck and mire, a horrible pit, he says, and the miry clay. These are great illustrations of the difficulty of the type of predicament he found himself in. Now, the idea is one of circumstances beyond human solutions, and David doesn't ever identify exactly what it is that he's going through, probably for good reason, so that you and I now reading it, looking at it tonight, fill in the blank. What is the horrible pit? What is the miry clay of your life? What is that right now? Now, it's relative, right? Your perception of what a horrible pit or miry clay is, it might vary from person to person. But nonetheless, are you living? Are you alive? Are you breathing? And if those things are true, which they are, then you're dealing with things in your life. They're trials that you have in your life. Now, these were particularly bad trials or difficult trials as evidenced by that language. But circumstances that are beyond human solutions. Now, what happens the more you try to free yourself from deep mud. So if David's in a horrible pit and he's in the miry clay, does he have, a, is there a human solution in mind? Why do, why do I bring out this point about its circumstances beyond human solutions? Because that's what miry clay is like. The more you struggle to free yourself from deep mud, the more stuck you become. What a great picture of lifting us from the miry clay and setting us free. We couldn't save ourselves when it came to the consequence of the penalty that was owed for our sinfulness. We couldn't do that. And we certainly can't save ourselves from the ongoing battle that we have with the enemies of the Christian, which the world, the flesh, the devil. We couldn't save ourselves from those practical spiritual battles either. Now there's just as often that would be true of even physical trials or emotional trials, psychological trials, financial trials, very often we don't have human solutions for those either. And the more that we try to fix it, the worse we make it. So David doesn't tell us, but maybe, you, maybe that makes it easier for you to relate. Because if he was talking specifically about, say, his trial with his son Absalom, and Absalom had caused a revolution, a revolt to take place against him where he had to leave the kingdom, he had to flee the, the palace and go into hiding as Absalom was seeking his life, his own son. This is one of many trials, but there's one example. Well, has that happened to you? Well, no. 
So not knowing may be actually be better here. In any event, these are the kinds of trials that remind us how much we need the Lord. That's the point. And the question is, can you relate? And I certainly can relate. Trials that they escape human solutions in a sense. And you think about what are the impossible challenges that you are facing or have faced in your life. Now, I did note as I was thinking about this miry clay or the horrible pit, it shouldn't take trials like this to make believers trust the Lord. It shouldn't take that. Too often it does. Some of you have never learned to trust the Lord because you ever, actually haven't ever gone through anything that would actually drive you to the point of despair and desperation that would make you actually trust the Lord. And sometimes I think that about young people, not, everybody, not, not every young person's life is easy, but a lot of them are, where they don't have to worry, worry really about anything. They really don't have to deal with much of anything. And in a normal, ideal situation, and I know many childhoods are not ideal or normal, but in many, it's really not much of anything. There's a warm home to live in, there's food to eat, there's clothes to wear, there's people around, there's not a lot of responsibility, there's not a lot of rainy days in a sense of what they have to deal with day in and day out. And so by virtue of that, oftentimes, especially in a land of plenty, children actually struggle to develop the same kind of dependent posture on the Lord that trials would have produced in their life if life had been a little bit harder. That's true. That can be true in our lives too. In a land of blessing, in a land of plenty, we don't have quite as many things come up over and over and over and over again. But there's enough. Who, who is wishing that they would have a few more trials in their life? Really, really nobody. Most of you, you'd say, I've had plenty of fair opportunities to respond to the Lord and trust the Lord and learn to depend on the Lord based on what I've already been through. I didn't really need more in order to do that. But you think about this section here, it really pulls out this idea that I have to, it has to be God who's going to undertake. Now, David is speaking figuratively. He's not saying he actually was in a horrible pit or he was stuck in miry clay. He's using that as an illustration of trials that he's been going through. But, you know, there was a prophet, there was a man who faced this in a literal sense, and his name was Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 38. I want to just show you that it's not impossible to actually find yourself in a literal miry clay. Now, Jeremiah found himself both in a horrible pit and miry clay at the same time. Maybe you've experienced that metaphorically or figuratively, but he actually experienced that literally. So that'll be a little bit further in our Bibles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, as you go through to your right, Jeremiah, what did I say, 38. Now, Jeremiah is speaking God's truth, and it's, it's an inconvenient truth, and it's not a glamorous truth. It was that he's speaking to Je Zedekiah. He's in charge, but you're going to be conquered, he's telling them. And they're saying, people are getting mad at that because they don't want to actually hear the truth. And so they became very angry at Jeremiah. And here if you come to verse 6, 
Zedekiah, verse 5, the king said, look, he is in your hand to these rulers who are upset that he's, he's prophesying to, the doom, to their doom. So then he gives, them, he gives him over. The, Zedekiah, the king said, look, he is in your hand for the king can do nothing against you. Now, verse 6, so they took Jeremiah and cast into the dungeon of Malchiah, the king's son, which was in the court of the prison. And they let Jeremiah down with ropes. And in the dungeon, there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sank in the mire. Now, picture yourself in that situation. He eventually was rescued from the mire. He stayed sort of in prison till the Babylonians came along. But nonetheless, they put him in a deep pit, an actual pit. And when he got to the bottom, he didn't find solid ground. He found mire and he sunk into it and then they left him there. Doesn't sound that wonderful, does it? Do you think Jeremiah prayed to God as one of God's prophets? Do you think he prayed to God about that situation? Now, that's a literal mire that he found himself in a literal pit. Same, same problem, really, a human problem, a situation where I'm hopeless and helpless. What do I do? I cry out to the Lord for help. Now, it doesn't say what he did or didn't do, but that's, that's how I, I would take that, and I don't think that's much of a leap to assume that he did cry out to the Lord and wait patiently on the Lord because he had established himself as somebody who was sensitive to the Lord's leading in his life and that he did trust the Lord. And that's the only way you could respond in that situation if you're going to respond in faith. Now, the other thing you need to see here in God's response is that God performs the action, not you. Now, this is the first of three specific actions God is said to have undertaken in response to David crying out for help and waiting patiently on the Lord. Now, it says here, he, the Lord, brought me up. He, the Lord brought me up. And you, you think about that. It's not focused on us. We're not the ones solving our own problems. And as you look at the second actions or specific actions of God that are listed, you see that it says, He, the Lord, set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. And as you think about what does that mean to set my feet on a rock, he set my feet on solid ground and he steadied me as I walked along is what that means, established my, he steadied me as I walked along. The Lord did that. Now, the thing you have to think about in terms of God undertaking to rescue or deliver David, God didn't promise or doesn't promise to do this exactly how or exactly when we want him to. But nonetheless, the Lord, while David waited on the Lord, he didn't know how long he would have to wait. But he waited patiently, having confidence in God's ability to undertake in the circumstances that he found himself in. And the Lord eventually delivered him. And in the context, it's David certainly seems to be talking about physical deliverance, not just spiritual deliverance. That actually happened without telling us exactly what it was or the exact details. Now, what is the next thing that is said? So verse three, so the Lord, he brought me up. He set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. In verse three, he also, he has put a new song in my mouth. 
Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. So he put a new song in my mouth. Here we see the third specific action of rescue undertaken by God. Now this is an indirect action in the sense that it's a byproduct of God's rescue. This new song refers to thinking, speaking, behavior. It's a reference to the totality or the expression of one's life. He made, my, he made the expression of my life to be the equivalent of a new song is the idea. Now, what is the content of the redirected song of David's life as you're trying to think of life in terms of metaphors or in terms of symbolism here as its figurative language? Well, what was the content of this new song in David's life? And it's, we see it here in the verse. And the, the verse says, praise to our God. Praise to our God. He put a new song in my mouth. What was the song? It was number one on the charts. It was called Praise to Our God. That's the song that should be number one on the charts of our thinking. The song, the song of our life should perpetually be Praise to Our God. Now what is the result of his singing this new song? We'll look at that at the end of verse three. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. That's why we know we're not talking about a literal song because you see it doesn't say many will hear it. It says many will see it. So we're talking about the totality of the expression of your life, the thinking, the words that would then flow from the thinking, the behavior that would come from the thinking. People can see that. They see it and what does it result in? They depend on the Lord. When it says fear there, they respect the Lord. They have a godly reverential fear for God and they trust in the Lord. And you think about your witness and your testimony and the song of your life. God wants to testify of himself through you. God wants to testify of himself through you. And that's what we mean here when we're talking about this new song in our mouth. And we are singing a song about being rescued from the miry clay tonight. Now, may that be the actual song of our lives. Next part we see here. Blessed is the one who makes the Lord his trust. Blessed is the man, or is that man, who makes the Lord his trust, but the one, any, any person, that makes the Lord his trust. Now this is presented as a summary statement of fact. So David has, was trusting the Lord. By trusting the Lord, he cried out to the Lord for help. He then waited patiently on the Lord. The Lord was observant. The Lord knew what was going on, heard what was going on, was interested in what was going on. Then the Lord delivered him. The result of that was that David was then in a posture where he had this new song to sing with the substance of his life. That song impacted many people. And then David can make this summary statement now. Blessed is anyone who goes through that process, who's trusting the Lord, who makes the Lord his trust. See, blessed could also be translated as joyful or happy. The key to this happiness and joy is trusting the Lord. It's not, they're not separated from each other. One brings about the other. As we trust the Lord, then we can experience blessing. And the blessing here, happiness, joy, blessing, all, all could be the same synonyms for the same underlying word here. Now, what is the alternative to trusting the Lord? We see that in the bottom part of verse 4 here. Instead, if you're not going to trust the Lord, then what are you going to do? You're going to be respecting the proud or you're going to be turning aside to lies. Those are the alternatives. It's pride and lies. Those are the alternatives to trusting the Lord. Is that going to bring joy or, or happiness in your life? 
The answer is no. The only thing that can is trusting the Lord. What else could you be trusting? Well, pride, what are we talking about? Trusting yourself, trusting some, someone else. When we're talking about lies, what are we talking about? Trusting the deceiver. Who is that? Satan manifests itself in self-centered thinking of the flesh too, which knows no truth. The, f- the flesh, the heart of man is what? It's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? You see, we can't, if it's trusting the Lord or it's trusting the deceit of the flesh or the deceit of the world, the deceit of the evil one. What is all of that? All of that is pride. So those are the alternatives that are put in front of any person at any time, including you and I. That's what David had as alternatives. He could either have trusted the Lord or he could have responded to pride and lies. He chose, to, he chose to trust the Lord. And so he was blessed because of that in the sense of he experienced joy and happiness. So now when you think about verse five here, there's so many blessings and reasons to praise God. There's so many blessings and reasons to praise God. Verse five, many, O Lord, my God, are your wondrous works which you have done and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. So it just speaks of in a sense of the basis for trusting the Lord. There's so many reasons to trust the Lord. He's shown himself to be trustworthy. There's so many wondrous works that he's done, they can't even be counted. And this is above and beyond the immediate rescue God has undertaken. Obviously, David could be responding in praise to that. But we're talking about reasons to praise God. It's because there's so many blessings in his life. And you see these phrases, many are your wonderful works. Your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted. They are more than can be numbered. Remember the song that we talked about recently in terms of counting our blessings for Thanksgiving as we're just thinking about concepts like that. Remember the song that I sang, it says, I will keep counting my blessings knowing I can't count that high. Straight from the pages of scripture. There's so many reasons to praise you, I can't even number them. They can't be recounted. That's how many there are. All of your wondrous works are so great in number. Now, we get to the section here, six through eight, about how God is really after the heart. As he deals with or interacts with his children, that's ultimately what he's after. Verse six, we pick up with sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears have you my ears you have opened, burnt offerings and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. See, God is primarily interested in hearts. The attitude, thinking, and motives behind the words and actions. We tend to focus on the words and actions. God, though, is focused on the heart, the attitude, thinking, and motives behind the words and the actions. And what he's really getting at here, he's not saying that God isn't interested in sacrifices or offerings. God is the one who ordained them to the nation of Israel of which David is a part. He's the king. That's not the point. The point is that sacrifices and offerings that are performed with the right underlying mentality, that's what God's after. What he's not after, God is not pleased by simply mechanically going through the motions. See, the external response 
Of the sacrifices and offerings, you could say the actions of obedience, perhaps even. But that external response was intended to flow from an appropriate internal response, an an appropriate internal perspective. So many people make the Bible about commands or about the do's and don'ts of the Scripture. That's not it at all. God has always been after hearts, looking at the internal what are the what are the what is the thinking? What are the motives behind what's going on? You see, genuine God honoring worship, it's never motivated by obligation, guilt, fear, shame, community or peer pressure, or a desire for recognition or acceptance. Genuine God-honoring worship is never motivated by obligation, guilt, fear, shame, community or peer pressure, or a desire for recognition or acceptance. That's a summary of much of the Bible right there in that statement. That's not what God's after. He's after a heart response. Always has been, always will be. The rest of it is a byproduct of the heart response. Is he interested in it? Is God interested in right and wrong? Answer is yes. But right righteousness will naturally flow from dependence as I'm trusting the Lord, enjoying the Lord, walking with the Lord. It's not the focus, it's the byproduct. Unrighteousness is a byproduct of a refusal to trust the Lord, depend on the Lord, accept what God says as true, or walk by faith to be convinced that God means what he says and says what he means. See, God is after a relationship-driven response to his goodness and complete provision that manifests itself through humble dependence on him and a desire to do his will. It's relational. He's looking for a relationship-driven response to what? To his goodness, his character, his complete provision and care. Now, how does that manifest itself? With a humble dependence on him, not I but Christ. I can do nothing without you. I want to stay connected to you. I need to depend on you, to trust you, to follow you, to let you provide, to let you lead, to let you empower. And that all comes from, and it's accompanied with, one and the same thing, a desire to do his will. Now we see that here right in our text as it says, I delight in verse 8 to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart, meaning it's heartfelt. It's not something I'm being forced to do or mandated to do or obligated to do or I'm scared to not do it. I have this heart response to you and that makes me have this delight in doing your will. Now, you see that mentality modeled by Jesus Christ whose willingness pleased the Father. And there's a bunch of passages we could could go to. We'll have to skip them. We're going to look at this more in Psalm 51 anyway. But there's a bunch of them that we could go to about the model of Jesus Christ. Now, this next section here, your praise will ever be on my lips. Your praise will ever be on my lips. It all kind of flows together as you're following this. God rescued me because I cried out to him. He was interested. He undertook to provide. That led to me having a new song in my life, so to speak, a new song in my mouth. It was a song of how blessed I am 
because of trusting in the Lord. I talked about or sang about how many blessings or reasons I had to praise you because God, and God was honored by that because it demonstrated a desire to do God's will and a heart for the Lord which is what God was really after. And so as I do that or continue to do that, your praise will ever be on my lips. Pick up in verse 9. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord. You yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So as we look at these, you're summarizing that, I summarize it with this lyric, your praise will ever be on my lips, which is taken straight from the scripture itself. Your praise shall ever be on my lips. See, David now discusses some of the specific praises present in his new song. He has this new song in his mouth. Well, now he's gonna talk about what were those praises that he was singing. David describes telling others about God and how that's, somewhat unavoidable. It's a natural flow from this intervention of God, trusting in God, having this new song in his heart, this new song in his life, this new song in his mouth. It reminded me of the old song of the faith that says, I sing for I cannot be silent. His love is the theme of my song. I sing for I cannot be silent. Uh, How could I not? As, As I see what God has done for me, as a byproduct of me trusting him more and more, how could I not be singing God's praises? You see, singing God's praises, it's always the byproduct of enjoying the Lord. It's always the byproduct of doing his will. It's always the byproduct of being led by the Spirit. If you're not singing God's praises, if you don't have a new song in your heart, so to speak, then you're not enjoying the Lord, you're not interested in his will, and you're not being led by the Spirit. Period. You couldn't have one without the other. The natural byproduct of enjoying the Lord, trusting the Lord, being concerned with doing the Lord's will, having the Spirit of God working in your life, is that you would be singing that song in your life. Now, I'm not talking about actual singing. Some of you are saying, I'm not a singer. I guess I'm never in fellowship or I guess I'm never enjoying the Lord. It's, the idea is the substance of your life, the song of your life. What is the song of your life that is being told to the people around you? I sing for I cannot be silent. Now there are things he's actually proclaiming. These are things that he's actually proclaiming publicly. Listen to all this language. I have proclaimed. Verse 9, I do not restrain my lips, verse 9. I have not hidden, verse 10. I have declared, I have not concealed. This isn't the kind of thing where I can be enjoying the Lord and then keeping all of this secret. It would be overflowing the cup of my life as I was enjoying the goodness of God in my life as I was trusting the Lord, as I had a posture of dependence on Him, as I was being led and directed by the Lord, it would be overflowing from my life is the idea. This idea that you could privately and, and, and never have it impact anyone, that that would be God's will for your life, that you would shut yourself up so that you wouldn't shine your light into the darkness at all, that you wouldn't have an impact on the people that God has put in your life. That his light wouldn't be seen in you. 
That it could be hidden somehow and still honor him. Nonsense. That's why when you think you can do the Christian life apart from God's way, apart from God's people, you're mistaken. Because God's way would always involve God bringing you among his people. Not, not just other believers, those are his people, but how about the people that need to hear about Jesus Christ? It wouldn't be possible. So the idea here is, I have not been afraid to speak out. I have not kept the good news hidden. I have told everyone. And then there's various attributes of God that are highlighted. Many more could be listed, but he talks about righteousness, faithfulness, salvation, loving kindness, and truth. These are the kind of qualities about God that he was singing about, and he was not hiding. If our gospel is hidden, friends, it's hidden to those who are perishing. If we are unwilling to let God's light shine forth through us, we will not redeem the time God has given us. We will not fulfill the mission that he has for us. Then he goes to verses 11 and 12 here and he effectively says, I'm helpless and hopeless without you. Now, I believe leading up to this was a summary and now he's going to talk about how he was feeling when he actually cried out to the Lord when he started the psalm in, in Psalm 1. Psalm 40 verse 1. He's just going flashing back to that is how I take it. So we read verse 11. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. Now he's going to describe the pit. Remember it was a, it was a deep pit. It was miry clay. It was a horrible pit, I mean. He'll describe it here. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. That's where David was at when he waited patiently for the Lord, but he first cried out to the Lord. You see that when it says, he heard my cry. That's what came first. He heard my cry. Why? Because my heart failed me. I could see that I was absolutely hopeless. What were the two parts of this? The two parts of this were that on one hand, you had the problem of other people, external troubles, and then you had personal struggles, in, in the context, personal struggles with sin. So the need for, for God's constant provision and deliverance is the focus here. You see that with, do not withhold your tender mercies for, from me, in verse 11a. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me, 11b. But, the issue is here, the takeaway here is, the believer needs the Lord. I am helpless and hopeless without you, from, in verse 12. You have those external troubles, innumerable evils have surrounded me, and then you have those personal struggles, my iniquities have overtaken me. Now think about the context of Psalm 38 and Psalm 39 about failure and sin. These are the kinds of things that David is now summarizing by calling them a horrible pit and miry clay that he had to cry out to the Lord for deliverance from. But the takeaway is the believer needs the Lord. So what is he, you have to have this posture then. If I see that I'm helpless and hopeless without you, the continuation of that is then I ask God for help. Help me, deliver me. And that's what verses 13 through 15, again, we're going back in real time to what, he's, what he was experiencing that he had summarized already. But 13, be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. I need your help. Help me. O Lord, make haste to help me, exclamation point. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. 
Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor. Now he's talking about the innumerable evils that have surrounded me from verse 12. He's giving, he's talking about what that involves and how he wants the Lord to respond. Let them be confused because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha, don't let them have victory over me is the idea there. So what's the takeaway? Please, Lord, rescue me. Come quickly, Lord, and help me. That's really, a, to me, a summary of verse 13. In this context, the focus is external difficulties and threats. The proper response involves asking the Lord to undertake, which is exactly what David does. Now, how does this psalm end? It ends with how every psalm of our life should end, how every song that we sing in life should end. God gets all the glory. Pick up verse 16. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. You see, God gets all the glory. God remains center stage and in the spotlight. You are my help and my deliverer, we see in 17, the back half of that. But notice this, the rejoicing and the gladness is in you. Let those who seek you and rejoice be glad in you. They seek you and they rejoice and be glad in you. God is the one in the spotlight. Now the frequency of praising him is said to be continually. Let such as love your salvation, meaning love, loving how you continually provide for your children, that's every man and woman of faith. Let all of them be saying this continually, the Lord be magnified. But the word is continually. This should be, this new song or this song that God put in his mouth is to praise God continually with this phrase, the Lord be magnified is the idea. Now he exalted specific attributes about God that we already looked at earlier. Nothing wrong with that either. But the whole thing is magnifying or making God bigger. That's sort of the idea there. It's making God bigger. And is talking about his righteousness, his long-suffering. Is that going to make God bigger? Yeah, it is. It's, it's highlighting what God is like, but keeping him center stage is what it ultimately does. So then you see this continual need here for a posture of humility, You'd never do any of this. You'd never trust the Lord if you were trusting yourself. You'd never cry out to him for You'd never come to the end of yourself. You'd never see your need if you were never humble. But we see this in 17 with this phrase, but I am poor and needy. The Lord be magnified. So in contrast to him, I am poor and needy. This posture of humility. You see, God's great deliverance, God's provision for his children, it's all based on his grace. It's all based on undeserved love that he has for his children. See, it says, I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. The Lord cares for you. The Lord cares for me, even though we don't deserve it at all. The Lord thinks upon me. Who am I that the God of all the earth would care to know my name? would care to know my hurt. Who am I? But yet God, even though I don't deserve it, God does think upon me. 
He cares about me. And that's sort of that mentality then that David has as he ends the psalm. You are my help and my deliverer. I see that the focus is on you. I don't deserve it. So do not delay, oh my God. Takes us back to real time as he was praying this prayer. So our title, Out of the Miry Clay. Are you presently in a horrible pit or miry clay? Or how about both? Maybe you are. Maybe it's not that bad, so you wouldn't describe it like that, but you, everyone has some kind of a trouble that they're going through. The question is, where are you going to turn for help? Where are you going to turn for help? Are you going to cry out to the Lord for help? And then what is your response going to be when God does provide and undertake? Is it just to move on, forget all about him, never praise him, never be a reflection of his goodness by singing a song of praise to him with your life? Never having your thinking affected enough so that in trusting the Lord and growing in faith, growing in understanding, growing in that relationship with him, you would have him put a song, so to speak, in in you or in your mouth that would impact others where you would boldly be telling others about God and his goodness. You would be magnifying him. The Lord be made bigger is what it means. The Lord be magnified. We're not making that up when we're singing songs about magnifying the Lord. The Bible is instructing us to have that posture that wants to make God bigger. You see, God is after a relationship-driven response to his goodness. He wants us to respond with humble dependence on him. He wants us to respond with a desire then to do his will. And you think about having a continual desire to sing his praises, that naturally accompanies this perspective. A continual desire to sing his praises naturally accompanies this perspective. So may we all be perpetually singing, hallelujah, what a savior who can take a poor lost sinner, lift him from the miry clay and set me free. I will ever tell the story shouting glory, 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 hallelujah, Jesus lifted me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could spend in your word. Thank you for this very encouraging Psalm 40. Pray that it wouldn't be something that just goes in one ear and out the other. Pray that we would see we all need you, not some of the time, all of the time, that we need to trust you, learn to trust you, that we'll experience joy and happiness. We'll experience that when we're willing to have a humble response to you and to let you undertake in our lives, see that without you we're hopeless to then give you all the glory, keep the focus on you. May the song of all of our lives be a song that wants to lift you up and sing about all that you've done for us and all that you've done for a lost and dying world. Pray that we could continue to sing that song together collectively as a church, that it would even be the anthem of our lives and our congregation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I sent out an updated prayer list today. If there were things that you wanted added to that, Send me an email or a text and I'll get those things added. With that, uh, if you have time to stay and pray with each other, certainly would encourage you to do that. And if you want to stick around in fellowship, that'd be great too. Thanks for coming out.